0: Coming up this week on the Thomas Jefferson Hour, another 10 Things discussion with Clay Jenkinson and Lindsay Chervinsky. This week's subject is
1: Lafayette. The Marquis de Lafayette, who came over before his 20th year to participate in the American Revolution, he became what is known as a hero of two worlds.
0: He continued to be involved in many generations of revolutionary activity. He was a strong emancipationist and believed in freedom of
1: religion. He was jailed for a number of years in Austria after the worst excesses of the French Revolution. His health was broken. His wife, Adrienne, joined him in that fetid Austrian prison. And yet he came back to the United States on a brilliant farewell tour in 1824 and wept in the arms of Thomas Jefferson at the portal of Monticello.
0: Please join us for all that and more on this week's Thomas Jefferson Hour. Good day, citizens, and welcome to What Would Jefferson Do? Our weekly opportunity to discuss current American events with President Thomas Jefferson, who is seated across from me now. Good day to you, Mr. President. Good day to you, citizen. Mr. President, um, I hesitate to even bring this subject up, but uh, it seems to uh, occur over and over again, this question of the Second Amendment and guns. Um, America has suffered some some horrific mass shootings in recent weeks, and uh, whenever that happens, the public is alarmed, and their representatives are alarmed, and moves are made to regulate the sale of guns to citizens, and and the fight goes on. And I look to you, sir, for some some insight, some judgment to help us to understand where we draw
1: the line. Well, I'm not certain because in my own time, uh, guns were much more simple. You know, a, a, a pretty good weapon, uh, say a rifle, the kind that Lewis and Clark took with them up the Missouri River, uh, would take 20 or 30 or 40 seconds to reload. These were single-shot weapons. We used ramrods and ball and cloth and powder. The powder had to be placed in the pan. Very complex. And so someone bent on mayhem in my time would maybe get off one or two shots before everyone would either flee or overwhelm him. And so the difference in technologies is staggering that the best weapons of my time were single-shot pistols or rifles, uh, no repeating of any sort. And in your time, uh, someone can have access to a a handgun or a rifle that can shoot 10, 15, 30 rounds per minute um, with easily replaced magazines. Uh, We're really talking about technological apples and technological uh, oranges here. Uh, the, The Second Amendment was not designed by Mr. Madison to guarantee private gun ownership, although it does. It was designed by Mr. Madison to ensure that we would have a a people's militia system rather than a permanent military establishment, what we called a standing army. And so if you look at the Second Amendment closely, the introductory clause about the need for a well-regulated militia is the basis for what follows, that the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. And so the historical meaning of the Second Amendment has more to do with national defense, than it does with individual ownership of weapons. So in a a certain sense, the Second Amendment is a fossil from a much different time that had a different signification in the time that it was adopted. And to attempt to make it cover technologies and social circumstances that are so different from the ones of James Madison and the founding generation is probably something of a mistake. That's why I recommended to Mr. Madison in a letter from Paris of 1787 that we tear up the Constitution every 19 or so years. That would allow you to go back and look at certain um, amendments or or clauses in the Constitution, the the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment, the Fourth Amendment's um, prohibition on illegal searches and seizures, the the, um, amendment that that pertains to... um, cruel and unusual punishments and so on, you would in your time be able to go back and clarify some of the contested and problematic and, and, um, and controversial elements of the Constitution as it was written in 1787 and ratified in 1788 and the Bill of Rights in 1791. I think trying to govern yourself in your time with an 18th century instrument is likely to produce all sorts of problems of this sort. Mr. Jefferson, I think what troubles me the most is the inability of our
0: leaders and our citizens to say, look at this issue from both sides and respond that both sides are right and both sides are wrong and find a common ground of a desired effect that, that two sides can then build from. We need, we need a leader
1: to take us in that direction, sir. Well, I think you have perhaps mythologized Uh, the Second Amendment. And and given it the status of the Ark of the Covenant, and you've made it too sacred to be touched, it would seem to me that public order, the security for individuals and groups, is at least as important as an 18th century uh, amendment that had more to do with the militia system than it had to do with individual ownership of weapons for, for private defense or hunting or anything else. And so it would seem to me that you have created a false mythology of the Second Amendment. You've been listening to What
0: Would Jefferson
1: Do? And I thank you very much, Mr. Jefferson. You are most welcome, sir.
0: Day citizens, and welcome to this week's edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour. I'm your host, David Swenson. I'm so pleased to be joined this week by the creator of the Thomas Jefferson Hour, Mr. Clay Jenkinson, and also Lindsay Chervinsky. And Lindsay, you are back for another episode of 10 Things You May Not Know. And this week's subject is Lafayette. And he was, he was known in America simply as Lafayette, and I'll leave it to one of the two of you to give his full and rather lengthy name. Before we begin, perhaps the two of you can give us a short biography or explain to our listeners who he was, why he was important, and I'll leave it to the braver of the two of you to try to recite his entire name.
1: I'll do that, and then Lindsay can tell us the real facts. I'll I'll butcher this, certainly. Marie-Joseph Paulise Roche-Gilbert Demotier Marquis de Lafayette.
2: Also known as General Lafayette, which is what he preferred to be known as later in life because he felt that it was more egalitarian. The Marquis de Lafayette, or General Lafayette, was born on September 6, 1757, and died on May 20th, 1834. In between, he was an integral figure in the Revolutionary War, the French Revolution, the subsequent revolutions in France afterwards, a supporter of revolutionaries across the globe, a friend of Washington, Jefferson, Madison, Monroe, Hamilton, and uh, a really remarkable character. So I'm really excited that we have the opportunity to talk about him.
1: We're working from two new biographies of him, uh, which is the reason why we chose this subject. I think, Lindsay, you've been reading Mike Duncan's Hero of Two Worlds the Marquis de Lafayette in the Age of Revolutions. I've been reading Revolutionary Brothers, Thomas Jefferson, the Marquis de Lafayette, and the friendship that helped to forge two nations. So we got a lot of Lafayette. I think
2: one of my favorite fun facts, and I'm sort of going out of order here, but that Lafayette was responsible for selecting the tricolor cockade that the French soldiers wore during the revolution, and that those colors went on to become the uniforms of the the French soldiers and then of course are still the colors in the French flag today so I like when you can really tangibly see someone's thumbprint on history. Lafayette's one of those characters not unlike George Washington in a lot of ways that for all intents and purposes he should have been a historical nobody he should have been a footnote but because of the intervention of fate or providence or whatever term you want to use and through unfortunately, a series of really tragic deaths. He becomes an orphan basically on both sides and the heir to the wealth and nobility and estates on both sides, which is why he's such an unusual person in the French nobility and why he does have this tremendous wealth when he's just a young child. And then he's then able to leverage that position into a really important and powerful one in between France and the United States, which I know we'll talk about more.
1: I always think of him as this heroic young man Um, who comes on and gets on a white horse and wins these battles. And he has great French élan. And I just see him as a heroic figure. But in France, he wasn't yet a heroic figure. In fact, he was kind of regarded as uh, beneath the real, the top echelon in the aristocracy. He was a provincial. He had an accent when he came to Paris. He was socially awkward. All of that struck me as really unusual, given his sort of mythological reputation.
2: Yeah, they really saw him as a country bumpkin. He didn't have any of the airs and the sort of nobility, the carriage that they expected people to have. He wasn't a good dancer. He wasn't particularly quick-witted. And so the things that were prized by French nobility at Versailles were not things that he could offer, at least not originally.
1: In fact, when Marie Antoinette danced with him, she laughed in his face. She laughed out loud at this country bumpkin at Versailles in this spectacular Uh, palace complex dancing with her. and uh, First of all, the fact that he was that close to the royal family is is amazing since he later fell out with them, but also that he was that awkward that a woman of exquisite manners would laugh out loud in his presence.
0: One last thing before we get into the list of 10. Um, He's an honorary American citizen, and I think he became the sixth, only the sixth Uh, And that happened in 2002.
2: So I would need to go back and look at my uh, statistics here. But I think that while he was still alive, Maryland granted him honorary citizenship. And because.
0: Right. In 1784.
2: So and because Maryland granted him citizenship, that applied to all states under the terms of the Constitution.
1: The 14th Amendment gives him equal rights in every state. But, geez, David, you're saying that some some recent ceremony also occurred.
0: Well, well the, the U.S. State Department determined in, eight, in 1935 that measures did not result in him becoming a United States citizen following the ratification of the U.S. Constitution. But in 2002, he was given honorary American citizenship by Congress.
1: Just one last thing that really strikes me about the relationship between Washington and, and Lafayette. You know, both of you. Lindsay, that um, you couldn't touch Washington. There's a famous incident where Hamilton and Governor Morris have this bet. Governor Morris is going to slap him on the back, and he almost despairs of it, but he does touch the great general on the back. And Washington turns and gives him a steely look, and Governor Morris shrinks away and has to buy Hamilton this dinner and so on. It's a great story. But Lafayette was able to embrace physically embraced George Washington. They kissed in the French style and Washington let it go for him.
2: Yeah, it's a really remarkable example of there are a couple of exceptions in Washington's life where the really sort of intense shield that he has up in front of him, he does let down for certain people. Certainly Martha was one of them who knew his innermost thoughts and feelings. And something about Lafayette's sort of joie de vivre and, and earnestness and desire to learn and actually genuinely participate and not just benefit himself, but be a part of the process. And his real admiration and love for Washington chipped away at those things. And, and they I do think by the end of the war, Washington genuinely felt like they were family, not just the official family that he often refers to his aides de camp or his uh, officers as.
0: Well, let's begin the list. And number one is that Lafayette had two frames in his house, one with the Declaration of Independence in it and the other with a blank for the future Declaration of the Rights of Man draft. And that opened with nature made men free and equal and maybe we could compare that to the declaration of independence and all men are created equal and talk about what jefferson's involvement in this was well first
1: just the naive beautiful love that that lafayette had for us for our cause He named his daughter virginie named his son george washington uh, he 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 loved america he he couldn't get enough of america uh, he almost became an annoyance in france because he was so Um, Inevitably pro-American on every possible subject from the tax relationships and funding and and everything else. So the fact that he, he was so inspired by America, not so much by Jefferson at this time, he didn't really get to know Jefferson until Jefferson was effectively our ambassador to France. They'd had some overlap during the war. But they didn't really get to know each other and so the fact that he had these this frame this is so symbolic frame of the declaration of independence and then a blank next to it and when people would ask as they inevitably would why is that blank then he oh that is for the future declaration of the rights of man and that's there's something so beautifully innocent about that lindsay that i just find it endearing even though it's just just this side of corny right
2: Oh, it is a little bit corny. I think Lafayette embodies corniness uh, to to a great deal. He well he just had such sometimes naive passion and overwhelming optimism. That was one of the things about reading this biography when I look at the you know expanse of his life, there were so many times that I personally would have been like, well, I give up. <laughs> I'm gonna go home now And he just never gave up. He just kept believing that liberty and equality were right around the corner that, Reform could be possible and would be possible, and the next generation would make it happen. And he never really lost that optimism and that sense of faith.
1: But you say, you know, how easily discouraged he could have become. You read the account of his arrival in South Carolina. They had to sneak in because there were British ships in the in the in the in the bay. Then he had to essentially walk to Philadelphia. You know, seven hundred miles through a place where there were no roads, there were no inns. Uh, They're being treated kind of shabbily along the way. No one is quite sure what he and his cohort are up to. And apparently, and you can clarify this for us, Lindsay, but apparently by now, Washington and the the American Establishment were being inundated with French people who were pompous and expected to be paid and wanted commands and wanted dignity and wanted ceremonies in their honor. And we were getting really tired of these kind of expensive, haughty, French amateurs. And suddenly along comes Lafayette, who does not like that at all. But when he first got to Philadelphia, he was mistreated by several people, John Hancock and then Robert Morris, before finally George Washington met him and sensed something different. I mean, don't you find that amazing in itself?
2: I do. I mean, the first couple of weeks, the first couple of months, he was treated abysmally. He was treated incredibly rudely, really not not Even just in the scope of the story, I mean, the way that he was treated, no American really should have treated a visitor at that point by the standards of decorum of the day. And yet because of the condescension that French officers had come to Philadelphia with and had sort of deigned to provide their services and expected to be treated as these saviors, Congress and Washington were really frustrated and tired by these people who had nothing to offer. And so when Lafayette came and said that he just wanted to learn, he just wanted to serve, he would pay his own way, he didn't need to have a salary, that was really a surprise and definitely you know, changed their minds, but put him also on the right foot with Washington.
1: So David, he gets to Philadelphia and he eventually meets Washington and he's almost immediately taken to observe troop movements and so on. And Washington and others sort of turn to him and say, well, Do you have thoughts? And Lafayette said, no, no. I came to listen and I came to learn. And that sentence uh, appears in all the biographies because apparently that was such a surprise to the American um, military leaders because they had been treated with such European condescension by these others who had come here. And so here was somebody who humbled himself. I mean, a, a genuine extremely wealthy European aristocrat with with military training and enormous ambition humbles himself in the face of this ragtag army. I mean, if you could observe that army, you had a right to feel condescending if you're a European officer.
0: That's the mark of one smart 20-year-old, I think. We need to take a short break. When we return, we'll get into this list of 10 things about Lafayette. We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to the Thomas Jefferson Hour. back to the Thomas Jefferson Hour this week. 10 Things About Lafayette, joined by Mr. Clay Jenkinson, the creator of the Thomas Jefferson Hour, and also one of our favorite guests, Lindsay Travinsky. Welcome back to the both of you. And here comes number two. Before he became the hero of two worlds, he was not that prominent in France. He came to America to prove himself, and he did. Which leads us to his relationship with George Washington, something you just touched on, Clay. Can you explain the influence of Washington on Lafayette's ideas about leadership and the importance of that to their relationship?
1: Washington had no children. We're not quite sure why, but his wife, Martha, was, let's say, a little older than average at the time of, of their marriage. No children. A lot of people vied to be his honorary child, his honorary son, Hamilton did, Jefferson did, others did. Everyone wanted to be close to this person who was already iconic, even in his lifetime. He didn't let them in. He let Hamilton in more than Jefferson, but he didn't really even let Hamilton in. Uh, But he certainly let Lafayette in. And so Lafayette was supplying something that Washington wanted and needed in addition to military expertise. And they became really close And it's a little bit hard to um, make sense of, but I think that Lafayette learned from Washington one really important thing, which is that the idea of a democratic republic is not enough to keep a democratic republic together. What Washington learned from the war was that you need a central government, you need a strong central government, you need a central government that can compel recalcitrant or reluctant states to do their duty that we barely won the war with the highly decentralized loose confederation that we had put together and the fact that we won the war was a was, was amazing given how really poorly we set about undertaking it and that this would this could not be allowed to stand and i think that lafayette you tell me lindsay how you feel about this but he was caught between worlds he was an aristocrat and a friend of louis, louis the 16 he, he was naturally he was born into the world of feudal aristocracy and feudal order and hierarchy he was enamored of these enlightenment ideas but this wasn't going to happen in france in his time and i think he's he spends a lot of time not in confusion, but being shuttled between two worlds, one that's not going to be born in France for a very long time, and one that's been born in America but's having a really rough go in the first round.
2: I would agree with that. When Lafayette comes to the United States, we should say that he actually was explicitly prohibited from coming to the United States by the king and was in outright defiance of royal orders when he did so. I could have
1: been in real trouble over this. It wasn't.
2: Oh, yeah. And this was not like a, you know, slap on the wrist. This was a real prohibition because they were worried at that point about being dragged into the war sort of before they were ready to do so. When he comes and he meets with Washington, there are a couple of key moments that he's he's not there for the entire war because he does go back and forth and he goes north and south. But he's present for a couple of key moments. One in particular is when the war is going so badly that Congress contemplates giving Washington dictatorial power. And Washington says no. Congress decides, you know, ultimately not to sort of do so. They give him emergency powers for short periods of time, but they don't make him a dictator because Washington wouldn't accept it. And then, of course, Washington returns his commission at the end of the war. And these moments are so integral to Lafayette's conception of what it means to be a Democratic Republican, of what it means to be a Republican leader. It's not just something that you read about in Roman or Greek history. It's a real live sacrifice by a person, but then also a willingness to step away. And he brought that back to France and really tried to embody Washington's example when he was the leader of the National Guard and he was trying to be, he was a member of the National Assembly. And as you said, he was really caught in this tough place because he recognized the limitations in the French system. The We've talked about this a little bit when we talked about in, in previous episodes, but the French constitutional system was, was so corrupt and so backwards that you couldn't just slap a few reforms on it, and all of a sudden you would have a constitutional monarchy like you had in Great Britain, or remove the monarchy, make a few reforms and have the constitutional presidency like you had in the United States. You had to really recreate the system from scratch. And so Lafayette was both trying to be a man of the people, which he felt himself in his heart to be, but also to lead and and understand that there were limitations to reforms that were possible. And that was really a, a rock and hard place that he found himself stuck between.
1: And he got caught between both sides. So the radical revolutionaries, the Robespierre branch of the revolution, were appalled by how protective he was of the king and how moderate he wanted the revolution to be in, it, in the way it unfolded. And the king and and the the high aristocrats were appalled by his flirtations with democratic republicanism and his his advocacy of the people. And and the the third estate, um, so it's an almost impossible position for him to be in, and he does wind up in prison for a fairly long time. But this just makes me want to ask you one more question, Miss, before we go on about Washington. This only makes us love George Washington and admire him more, because how often, Lindsay, in the history of revolutionary movements, does the revolutionary leader resign his commission, return to his farm, renounce power? Um, If you always were going to get a George Washington, you would feel better about revolution. But you almost never, ever get a George Washington. Uh, The French were soon to get Napoleon. And so this makes us think that Washington is truly not just the indispensable man in American history, but almost the savior of the American Revolution.
2: That's right. I mean, generally, I try and avoid language like that because it feels, you know, kind of cringy, but... Lafayette certainly didn't think so, because as you said, he then had the exact opposite experience just a couple of decades later. He was around when Napoleon took power. He was openly critical of Napoleon almost the entire time. And sort of because of his stature, he was a little bit untouchable and he also didn't try and directly overthrow Napoleon. But he lamented that Napoleon was this dictator and did make himself into an emperor. So he had you know, firsthand proof about how rarely that kind of self-control shows up in the history books.
1: The last person who did this was Cromwell. He took power. The next person who did this was Napoleon. He took power. So Washington rests uniquely between them as a person who read too much Plutarch. (laughs) That's true. That's true. Let's move on to our
0: next point, which is Uh, about Jefferson and Lafayette. Jefferson said Lafayette had a canine appetite for popularity and glory, but they actually became close friends and Lafayette turned out to be a a one-man lobby for American interests.
1: Jefferson said this, a lot of people said this about Lafayette, that he had, Jefferson loved that term, canine appetite. He wasn't a friend of dogs, by the way. Um, Jefferson is weird in in that manner.
2: It's one of his main cons.
1: I th- you, for you, that's almost a deal breaker, <laughs> I think.
2: It is. It's a deal breaker.
1: He, he was not fond of dogs. He once actually ordered all the strays at Monticello to be killed. And when you read that, you just you just feel that there's a heartlessness somewhere at the center of Jefferson's life. Anyway, uh, canine appetite for popularity. I think it's certainly true. Um, Lafayette realized that he was the darling of the people he's a hero of two worlds so he was the darling of the Americans he goes back to France and he becomes the darling of the french movement before the revolution sours before it gets too extreme and he does a lot of sort of standing up and holding forth and being always visible and make sure that he has the right pose and there's something about that that's that slightly um turn Jefferson off.
2: Yeah. I mean, Lafayette was incredibly colorful. He was really good at that sort of dramatic moment, which I do wonder if perhaps some of Jefferson's dislike of that was a recognition that he was not capable necessarily of capturing the public attention in that particular way. But there's no doubt that Lafayette had a, a keen sense of his own ambition, wanted it to have military glory, sometimes made choices, that were not the most advantageous, especially on the battlefield in, in search of that military glory. And he did remain a, you know, a fan of the American cause, really, until the end, I was thinking about the second half of David's question. Towards the end of his life, he's offered the opportunity to go be the French minister to the United States. And he's offered the opportunity, Jefferson offers him the opportunity to become the governor of Louisiana. And he turns down both opportunities because he feels that he can't properly be a French minister because he loves Americans so much and he loves the United States so much. And so he's not going to be able to represent national interests in the way that the country deserves because he's always going to see the other side of the argument.
1: You know, it blew my mind to see that that Jefferson offered him the governorship of Louisiana. Um, What a strange, I don't think that that necessarily would have been approved by the Congress of the United States, but but he offered it to Meriwether Lewis, who took it and failed uh, in a way that cost him his life. He offered it to Monroe, who said no. He's searching around for anybody who will go out and govern that ungovernable Western territory. But imagine—I mean, historians are not fond of what if history. But imagine if Lafayette had wound up as the governor of Louisiana, how the history of this country might have been different. But but back to, to the question of Jefferson, Lafayette, David. Jefferson does not use figurative language very much. He's very straight and lucid. Uh, writes very transparent prose. But he later said of Lafayette that in France, when he was there for those five years. He said, I only held the nail. Lafayette drove it home. It's a pretty strong statement by the understated Jefferson that Lafayette was indispensable to his work as the American minister. And, and one last little bit about this. Jefferson was asked by the state of Virginia to get Houdon, the greatest sculptor of the time, to do busts of Lafayette in Paris. And the Jefferson was sick at the time when the one at the city hall was dedicated. He sent William Short his aide instead but that was later destroyed uh, during the Reign of Terror, uh, the, the Paris version of, of that. The, the one in the United States still exists. Uh, so Jefferson has a funny relationship with Lafayette. I, I, I do think, Lindsay, you're right, that Jefferson didn't have the gene of the man on horseback. I don't think he envied it very much, but he must have realized how effective that gene can be if you have it.
2: One other fun little fact with Lafayette and Jefferson, they continued their correspondence, of course, until the end of Lafayette's life. So when when Lafayette learns that Hamilton had died in Lafayette and Hamilton had, of course, been incredibly close during the war and remained incredibly close, he writes a letter to Jefferson and says, the deplorable death of my friend Hamilton hurt me deeply. I am sure that regardless of the differences between your two parties, you always admired him and feel his loss as deeply as I do. Needless to say, when I read that, I actually chortled out loud because um, Jefferson felt no such feelings.
1: In fact, we have very little from Jefferson on the death of Hamilton. He writes a letter to his daughter Martha later that summer, and and it's about crops and things he wants her to do back at Monticello and minor things that are going on his pet mockingbird and so on. Then he says, um, among notable recent events, the death of Colonel Hamilton, and that's it. I mean, he's you'd think he would be like high fiving Madison or Throwing a party. He
2: very well may have been. He may
1: have. We just don't know, right?
2: We do know, however, though, when compiling his documents later, even, you know, 10 years after Hamilton's death, he had no problem um, disparaging Hamilton and criticizing him. So clearly those, you know, feelings didn't die too too quickly.
1: Well, he was just quoting the truth in the honor. <laughs> <Earth. laughs> Let's talk about
0: a couple of dinners. Lafayette's visit to Monticello in 1824 And then also the dinner Jefferson hosted for the moderate revolutionaries at his hotel in Paris.
1: So it's getting late in the game. Jefferson has applied for leave of absence to come back to the U.S. briefly. He says he's going to go back to Paris. It's not entirely clear to me that he was going to go back to Paris, but he's gotten permission to come back. He's he's sort of wrapping up his affairs in Paris. And Lafayette contacts him and says, "I, I want you to host a dinner party right away. I'm going to bring a number of moderate intellectuals um, of the revolution. Uh, I think with your experience and and your distinguished work in the American Revolution, that you might be a very useful um, counselor to this dinner. And of course, Jefferson loves nothing so much as having a dinner party. Just, you know, he's going to do the menu. He's going to write the cards. He's going to order the food. This is Jefferson at his very finest. He said later that these were conversations that you would have expected from Lycurgus or Solon. Now, these were these were extraordinary conversations by these earnest people who wanted with all of their hearts and minds to produce a free republic for France. And that he said, he said, I said almost nothing. I sat and, and listened and, and you know and, and brokered this to a, a bit a, a little more wine for you, sir, a little more gravy. And then he said, but after the the very successful dinner ended, he immediately realized that he had probably committed an offense against his diplomatic protocol because he was, in a sense, interfering in in a revolution um, against the, the monarchical system that he was there to negotiate with.
2: Well, it's such an interesting dichotomy because he leaves shortly thereafter. And so his idea of the French Revolution is so shaped by this early experience, whereas for the remainder of his life, Lafayette was deeply distrustful of the concept of a republic in France, because he believed that the country just was not prepared for it yet. He really wanted a constitutional monarchy. That was the form of government he continued to advocate for, because he had seen the violence and the damage done later on. So you have these two revolutionaries who started off with relatively similar moderate positions And then they diverge on their perspective about the French Revolution because of their experiences afterwards.
1: And Jefferson was never in a street action in his life, as John Adams liked to point out to him. Uh, Lafayette was.
2: Yes. So in 1824, as things in France are not particularly going well, uh, Lafayette receives an invitation from President Monroe to come visit the United States. And he decides this is the perfect opportunity to sort of get out of town for a bit, let cooler heads prevail. And he travels to the United States and he does a tour of the entire country. He goes to New York and Boston and Washington, D.C. He stops at all of the major presidential homes. He goes to Mount Vernon and Monticello and uh, Montpelier and Highland and sees all of his you know, former friends. He visits with Washington's uh, family. Of course, George Washington is no longer alive. What is remarkable about this trip is it comes in the very middle of a very contentious presidential election. In 1824, it was the end of the, quote, era of good feelings. And John Quincy Adams and Andrew Jackson and Henry Clay and, uh, you know, several other candidates are duking it out to see who's going to become James Monroe's successor, most of which uh, are actually in his cabinet. So uh, it's an interesting cabinet experience. And yet, despite their their really nasty campaign, and this was a nasty campaign, they all agree on Lafayette. They all love Lafayette. They all celebrate Lafayette. And he meets with all of them. He stays with all of them. He dines with all of them. And so he's sort of the one thing they can all agree on at this moment. And he goes to several dinners with John Quincy Adams. He visits Andrew Jackson. Um, And then, of course, he does uh, go see Thomas Jefferson twice, um, and visits him twice. And the dinners are really remarkable because at this point in his career, I know we're going to talk a little bit more about slavery and abolition in a moment, but at this point, he's a pretty committed abolitionist and yet goes and stays at Monticello. His food is prepared by enslaved individuals. His clothing is cared for by enslaved individuals. And, um, he, There's some, I think, some disagreement about whether or not he necessarily talks to Jefferson while he's there at this moment about this issue. Um, But needless to say, their second visit is particularly heartwarming because they both know it's the last time. They both know that they're not going to see each other again. And that is a powerful image to conjure up.
1: Um, Lafayette must be, I mean, I'd love to have his diary from this. I mean, it must have been interesting to watch this old patriarch. But, but just to, to sort of anticipate what we're going to talk about in the third section of this program, David, Lafayette is a strong emancipationist, at least at some points in his life. Jefferson was aware of this. Lafayette joined anti-slavery societies here and abroad. And You'd have to really reflect on this. So let's pick it up. After the break, we're listening to a special edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour with our friend Lindsey Trubinsky, talking about ten things about the Marquis de Lafayette, A.K.A. Gilbert. We'll be back in just a moment.
0: Welcome back to the Thomas Jefferson Hour this week, our discussion about Lafayette with the creator of the Thomas Jefferson Hour, Clay Jenkinson and Lindsay Chervinsky. So in our discussion so far, we sort of established that Lafayette came to America due to his beliefs, his belief in the American cause, his belief in freedom for religion. And also he was a serious emancipationist.
2: Lafitte is another example, we've touched on a few over the last several programs, of people who are committed ideologically, but sometimes find the circumstances of life in the 18th and early 19th century to be beyond their control or beyond their ability to withstand. So from the very beginning, when he first arrives in the United States, he has this concept that everyone is free and has this really kind of embarrassing line in the letter about everyone is free because... They all have, using his language, a Negro, which then he sort of realizes um, at, at a certain point that slavery is not like servitude that he is used to in France. He at some point is gifted an enslaved person, and then that person disappears from the record. It's unclear if he was sold or given his freedom. But by the time Lafayette comes back in 1824, he's gone through a series of evolutions such that he is ideologically very opposed to slavery on his on his tour, he has a couple of friends with him who are even more outspoken about this two young women who um, try to create societies that are sort of you know utopian societies. He visits schools for free African-American children. He visits with well-known free black men. and so he's not subtle about his wishes and his desires on this trip. And yes, there's no way that Jefferson could have, ignored these messages that were you know very commonly discussed to the point actually where uh, Nellie Custis, one of George Washington's heirs, sort of ices out Lafayette's friends because she feels that they are inappropriately anti-slavery. So certainly Jefferson knew he just was a master at compartmentalizing as you know you well know, and does a marvelous job of somehow not allowing those two parts of his brain to touch. The one part about Lafayette's experience with slavery that I think that I learned in, in reading this book and, and is worth discussing is its connection with the Caribbean and Haiti in particular. So prior to the French Revolution and prior to the Haitian Revolution, France owned a series of colonies in the Caribbean. Lafayette and Adrian, his wife, were both committed abolitionists. So they decided that they were going to buy a plantation, including the enslaved people on it, and then they were going to emancipate those individuals. Unfortunately, before they were able to do so, the French Revolution broke out and eventually all of his estates were seized by the state. After his imprisonment and sort of his restoration as a French citizen, the French state offered to give back that plantation and then buy it from Lafayette because they knew he desperately needed the money. But one of the terms of this offer was that he had to sell back all of the property, and that included the enslaved individuals, which he agreed to do because he needed the funds or believed that he needed the funds. And so he was never able to follow through on this brilliant vision and ended up selling enslaved individuals back into slavery. They had been free temporarily, and then Napoleon came in and restored slavery, and eventually there was the Haitian Revolution. But it's a much more complicated, murky process than sometimes we remember.
1: He became disillusioned to a very considerable extent by the United States, when he, especially when he came back and he realized, oh, since my departure, not only have they not resolved this terrible contradiction at the center of American life, but they've hardened it and extended it. And I think that was a real disillusionment for him. And he had to think... well. And he actually says in some letters, you know, it's hard to know what we were fighting for here if this is not the logical trajectory of the human rights tradition. And as you know, so many people were kind of toying with the idea of the supervised free plantation. So you'd you'd free enslaved people, find them a homeland in the Ohio Valley or somewhere, give them white supervisors to ease the transition. A lot of people were toying with this, including Edward Coles in Virginia and in the Ohio Valley. And Lafayette gets involved in this both in Haiti and then in French Guiana, which is in South America. But as you say, those there's too far away, he can't supervise it, there are too many other things going on in his life. The revolution in France uh, disturbs and and, and, and and disrupts everything. And in the end, the enslaved people on these plantations probably did not benefit from this set of amazing disruptions over time. And yet you can't help but look upon this as something honorable in Lafayette's character.
2: It was certainly an effort, which is more than some made. And I think that he should be credited for that effort and certainly credited for his heart being in the right place and and wanting to make a difference, even if it didn't necessarily turn out that way.
0: You mentioned two things, Lindsay, Lafayette's wife, Adrienne, and also his time in prison. And those two are connected. Could you tell us how?
2: Adrian and Lafayette were married when they were very, very young, and it was an arranged marriage because the her family was a very was sort of the premier noble family in France. And but they were much more than the
1: Lafayette's. They were urban, rural, they were a hot central family. His was a marginal family.
2: Yeah, they were the center of Versailles life, but they were cash poor and needed the influx of cash that the Marquis de Lafayette offered, and they also were male heir poor. So they did not have male sons. And here was this orphan boy that they could bring into their household and mold to their specifications and make their heir. So it was a very attractive match on both sides. It actually ended up turning into a love match, certainly initially more on her side than his. He very much comported himself by the standards of French society at the time, which was that you were supposed to have a wife and then you were supposed to have a series of mistresses, and that demonstrated your social skills and your wit and your intellect and your uh, capacity for being a a noble man. Um, she struggled with this because she did genuinely love him. And this comes to a head when we think about the imprisonment during the French Revolution, Because she was from a noble family, of course, noble families were were imprisoned, many were executed, many of her family members were executed, and when he fled France, he fled into Austria, and the Austrian forces offered him the opportunity to have freedom in return for offering up information and data on the French army, and he refused. And so instead, they imprisoned him as a prisoner of state, which meant that he could not be treated like a prisoner of war and when adrian finally fled france as well traveled to austria found him she begged for his release she lobbied for his release uh, that was refused and so she requested to join him and she and her t- their two daughters joined him in prison for years in terrible terrible conditions completely destroyed her health she never fully recovered She had rashes and abrasions and swelling and, yeah, terrible because the cells were dank and moldy. There was no ventilation. The food was poor. And they stayed in these cells for years. And um, she was offered at times the opportunity to leave to get health care. And she said that unless he left with her, she would not go.
1: It's an amazing story. I mean, you just have to try to think of where else a story like this occurs. And they survive it. Both of them survive it. To think that Lafayette wound up in an Austrian prison is hard enough to get your head around, but to think that then she went out of love and devotion to him, and with their children, which she could easily have, her son was somewhere else, she could have deposited her children elsewhere, she did not, just makes me think that she is a very, very remarkable person in her own right. And speaking of the women, of course, as you say, you gave kind of a, let me be snarky with you, gave a pretty patriarchal defense of the french s- system of mistresses but that's fine
2: oh well it was garbage obviously but and she didn't think it was acceptable but you know
1: it's i mean it's just like typical patriarchal way of forming a social construct that's regarded as as noble and, and virtuous which is in fact exploitative in the deepest sense
2: yes one thing about adrian that i think we should you know tie to i, I believe we talked about this with abigail adams as well but So often we discuss the sacrifices of people like Lafayette or John Adams and their service. But when Lafayette spent his funds on the war, he was spending their funds. And she often was the one securing the loans, sending the money, arranging for these things to take place when his property was seized, their property was seized. You know, it's very explicit when she's in prison with him. But all of that sacrifice, all of that service doesn't happen without her consent and support and approval. And while he's gone, she's giving birth to his children and his heirs and taking care of them and taking care of the lands and the family while he is coming up with this scheme to try and manage this Caribbean plantation, she's actually the one doing it once he leaves. So this really has to be seen as a family contribution. Yeah. It's a, it's a, re- it's a real partnership and, and not necessarily in the way that Abigail and John were. I don't think that they had the same sort of discourse, but she sacrifices just as much as he does. And she was in prison and, you know, basically saw her mother, I think it's her mother, her sister and her aunt executed at the guillotine one week before the end of the reign of terror. So this experience was quite visceral for
1: her. And David, just one more little piece of, of, of this story. He, Lafayette left the country to come to America without consulting her. It was he, he was forbidden by the crown to leave the country. so he. Was- well,
0: he was only 19. So if we can remember back to that. She
1: was pregnant. <laughs> She's pregnant. She gives birth while he's gone. He comes back in the mid-war. No one ever expects really to see him again. Um, and then now he's a father. But he left the country. He did say goodbye, but he left without consulting her. Uh, That had to be a bad moment for that marriage.
0: Yeah, I would think so. So we'll call this number 10. Lafayette died at the age of 76 in Paris and had a request. He was known as the hero of two worlds, and he requested to be buried in both American and French soil, and his son covered his coffin with dirt they had taken from Bunker Hill.
2: Well, you can't really make this story up. This is why I think history is sometimes even more fascinating than fiction, because when Lafayette was on his trip in the United States in 1824, he was initially only planning to go for four or five months. He ended up staying for over a year because he wanted to be there for the commemoration, the celebration of the Battle of Bunker Hill. So he was there to lay this cornerstone of this monument, and he brought back a bag of dirt with him so that he would have it with him, knowing he was towards the end of his life. But I want to add one more element to this. So In addition to he was buried, he was buried next to Adrian in the cemetery. The dirt was laid over his grave. Over a hundred year hundred years roughly a hundred years later, um, in the middle of World War I, when American forces made their way to Paris, the generals went and visited Lafayette's tomb and said, "Lafayette, we are here." To say that they have come back to pay the debt to the French that they had paid in the American Revolution, you can't make that up. It's just like, of course, it goes way over the borderline of cliche, but it's so fantastic. It's such a great story.
1: This is a corny one. You you approve of? I love it. So that a little, he's a little pose here. Alexander the Great he had a casket in which he had a copy of the Iliad that he used as a pillow. There is a heroic thing going on here, but it's beautiful. And to think that, again, to the naive loveliness of the character of Lafayette, that he wanted to be buried with a handful of soil from Bunker Hill. He lingered, as you said, Lindsay, because it was the 50th anniversary of Bunker Hill. So he goes to that ceremony. and he, I don't know if he did it himself, but he has someone get a bushel of earth that he then ships back with him when he finally goes back to Europe. I mean, if ever we had a friend in France... That friend was the Marquis de Lafayette. He got the title Hero of Two Worlds sort of indirectly from Voltaire. It's not exactly what Voltaire said, but it was along those lines.
0: As we come to the close of this discussion, I want, if you would, to get you to tell us the title of the biographies that you've referred to, to make sure listeners get those. And then, please, if there's something that we have missed in this discussion that you think should be added. Now's your time.
2: Sure. Well, I the book that I read was Hero of Two Worlds by Mike Duncan. I think its biggest strength is its focus on Lafayette's role and his life after the American Revolution. I learned a great deal. It is very accessible for a public audience who isn't necessarily a historian audience. So um, it should be a, a, a good and easy read.
0: The historian Gilbert Chenard. I'm sure you're familiar with, wrote in 1936 that Lafayette became a legendary figure and a symbol so early in his life and successive generations have so willingly accepted the myth that any attempt to deprive the young hero of his Republican halo will probably be considered as little short of sacrilegious. So maybe not everybody had this good of a feeling about him.
1: I read both books. uh, The one Lindsay mentions by Mike Duncan, Hero of Two Worlds, The Marquis de Lafayette, and The Age of Revolution. And then uh, Tom Chafin's book, Revolutionary Just Out, Revolutionary Brothers, Thomas Jefferson, The Marquis de Lafayette, and The Friendship That Helped Forge Two Nations. I hate those subtitles, Lindsay. The something, something, (laughs) and the something, something that saved Scotland. The something, something, and the something, something that changed the world. Every every, um, popular publisher now uses that trope. Uh, I actually liked Revolutionary Brothers more than I liked Hero of Two Worlds. Although the problem with Revolutionary Brothers is that Jefferson is less interesting than Lafayette. <laughs> and you know, and, and so the, he has kind of has to catch you up on Jefferson from time to time. But it's really a great chapter on Jefferson's uh, behavior during the pre-invasions uh, of Virginia in 1781. And uh, Lafayette, that's where Lafayette really felt deep sympathy for Jefferson, because he he realized rightly that whatever Jefferson didn't have of the right stuff, he was doing everything in his power to hold Virginia together during a very, very, very difficult time. And then Lafayette winds up at Yorktown with Hamilton, and it all works out. And Jefferson... And the world turned upside down. The world was turned upside down.
0: I congratulate the two of you on another fine 10 things... You maybe didn't know about this historical figure. And I must tell you, Lindsay, we have received so many comments via the thomasjeffersonhour.com website uh, about these these series of conversations that you and Clay have had, um, and, and they are all glowing. Uh,
1: do either of you have any idea about uh, the next subject? Well, I was going to put three possibilities to Lindsay, and you might recommend something fun. different.
2: I like multiple choice questions. Multiple
1: choice, yes. So, Patrick Henry, I've become fascinated by recently, having interviewed John Ragosta. uh, James Monroe, uh, the, le- the least of the three um, triumvirate from Virginia. Uh, or George III. There's this spectacular and gigantic new biography of George III. But we need a lot of women in this thing, too. And it's harder to find women of this era who have enough prominence in the revolutionary period Uh, seeing a Mary Wollstonecraft we could do at some point. Mercy Otis Warren is worth doing, especially for her long quarrel with John Adams after the war. But what's your thought?
2: I would add another woman to the queue. We could do Dolly Madison. Um, That would be another option. Um, Let's do... Hmm...
0: Well, I'm sorry, but we are out of time for this week. We're going to need to say goodbyes. I'll leave. I'll leave the two of you to discuss this off mic.
2: But uh, Governor we Morris, <laughs> we've got to do <laughs> Governor Morris. We do have to do Governor Morris at some point. We'll we'll do a cliffhanger for our audience. Meanwhile, thank you all
0: so much for listening. Yeah, we'll just keep and, talking,
1: uh, David. You can take us out. We'll see you all next week for another important edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour.
3: The Thomas Jefferson Hour is brought to you each week by Dakota Sky Education. The program is distributed nationally by Prairie Public. President Thomas Jefferson lived from 1743 to 1826, and this program presents his views. President Jefferson is portrayed by the award-winning humanities scholar and author Clay S. Jenkinson. To obtain a copy of this or any show for a $12 donation, please call 701 This program is also available online at jeffersonhour.com and on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to correspond with President Jefferson or submit a question for him to answer on the program, please visit the website at jeffersonhour.com. The Thomas Jefferson Hour is produced at Makoche Recording Studios in Bismarck, North Dakota. Bach Cello Suite Number 3 in C Major by Stephen Swinford. Thank you for listening. Please tune in again next week for another thought-provoking, historically accurate program Through the Eyes of Thomas Jefferson.